made for Mondays. When we talked about uh, getting an opportunity to speak this morning, Keith asked me, is there something you want to speak about? And I said, you know, this Made for Mondays series that you've been doing, I said, would it be okay if I just closed that series? And he said, yeah, why don't you just, don't you just jump in on that? And so I started to think and pray about just joining in on this Made for Monday series. And so really, that's what I want to do this morning is get an opportunity to kind of join in with what Keith has been talking about and encouraging us to be thinking about what our, our faith looks like when we're at work, when we're doing what we do for most of our lives. What does our faith actually look like? So Made for Mondays, I'm diving in and, and continuing on with this series this morning. Anybody in here, uh, World War II buff, like this is your thing? World War II is kind of your thing. You love it. You, you, read, you read about it. You watch movies about it. Anybody? Anybody specifically around the D-Day? D-Day invasion, anyone? Is that kind of your thing? Anybody? I'm not seeing a lot of like, like absolutes. So yeah, I guess our family, uh, uh, World War II is Julie's thing. I mean, she, she loves it. I don't know. I know it's giving into the dark side of her soul a little bit because part of, the, part of what she loves to read about are some of the really hard things that happened in World War II, some of the Auschwitz and Dachau type things. And I know that's, a, that's part of what she loves. I love more the kind of the strategy, some of the, the battle, some of the stuff that was going on that, around some of the big events. So D-Day for me has always been one of those things that's really been kind of gripping for me. So I got to find out out there. Does anybody know what was going on behind the enemy lines in D when D-Day happened. Anybody know a little bit about this? I see a couple people nodding. Anybody know a little bit about what was going on behind enemy lines when D-Day was coming, when all of those boats filled with all of those soldiers, all of those weapons, when they were approaching that shore, what was going on behind enemy lines? Anyone? Anyone know? Anybody know any code names? You know Albany or Boston? You heard those names before? Codename Albany, codename Boston. The Screaming Eagles, the 101st, were codenamed Albany with their mission. One hour behind them came the men of the 82nd Airborne Division. They were codenamed Boston. They were parachuting in. All those boats were coming at the shore, facing that incredible wall, that arsenal. But behind enemy lines, soldiers were being dropped, dropping in parachutes. Some of them were dropping in plywood gliders. And they had incredibly important missions. They had bridges to capture. They had things that they had to get done because what they were going to do behind enemy lines was going to make what was happening on the beach successful. When we lived in France, we were there for six years. I was pastoring an international English-speaking church in the south of France. It was an incredible time in our lives. We got to go to Normandy and, and be there. There's a little church, St. Mariglis, where one of the guys came down in his parachute, and he got caught in the middle of the town square. Have you seen this? Does this image, uh, you're reminding, is this coming back to your mind at all? His parachute gets caught on the town square little statue and he's hanging there in the town square. He hangs there and just acts like he's dead. 
And the German soldiers see him hanging there all day, but he's still alive. This guy had a mission. He knew what his mission was. He hung there all day and pretended to be dead. And at the end of the day, when it started to get dark, he climbed down and he went ahead and he participated in his mission behind enemy lines. Incredible, incredible stories about what was going on. What we see, what we remember, what we think about when we think about D-Day and that attack was all that was going on in the craziness of the beach. But behind enemy lines, amazing things were happening that made what was going on on the beach possible. You think that that guy, as he hung there, you think for just a moment as he felt stuck, if anybody ever felt stuck in their life, that guy had to feel stuck. I mean, right? My parachute gets caught up and I get hung out in the air right in front of all these German soldiers. I mean, this guy had every reason to just feel stuck. But apparently, the sense of being sent the sense that he was on a mission was even more important, was bigger in his world than just being stuck. If he was just stuck, he just would have stayed. But this guy was sent. He was on a mission. He knew he had important things to go and do. They actually had a bridge to go and capture that was going to cut off the ability of the Germans to resupply the front lines. He hung there all day stuck. And as soon as he could, as soon as he had the opportunity... That guy was sent. Absolutely. Are we sent or stuck? This is where I want to kind of close this Made for Monday series. How many of you have been here for some part of the Made for Monday series? You've been here for at least part of it. Okay. Bunch of you. Some of you are, are just jumping in with us. And we're glad you're here. But I know a lot of us have been here for part of it. And I don't know about you, but it is really easy to find a way to excuse ourselves from a message like this. Sorry, I'm just going to be honest. I find myself sitting here thinking, what he's talking about for work doesn't really fit my situation. And every now and then Keith was saying something that felt challenging to me. But just as often I found myself sitting here thinking, I work from home. I don't, I don't have a desk. I don't go in. I'm not in an office environment. Maybe some of you are sitting there thinking, I'm in school. I don't really, made for Mondays doesn't really relate to me. I'm in school. I don't have a job. What other excuses might we come up with? Just throw some out at me. What are other ways we could just excuse ourselves from the Made for Monday series? Throw it out to me. I don't work. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> Amen. Drop the mic. I was with the wrong hand. Got to drop the mic hand. What else? What are other ways we could excuse ourselves from the Made for Monday series? Retired. I'm retired. Keep going. I work with Christians. What does this have to say to me? I work with Christians. Some of you, that's just right lines up with, with your world. You work with believers and you're thinking, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Can we get to the next series? What, what other excuses are there? You're training for the Tough Mudder. Yes. Oh, okay. Thank you, Todd. I, 
I think that there are a lot of ways that we could excuse ourselves. And this morning, I'm sorry, I'm coming after me and I'm coming after you. Because I sat here and I listened and I loved the series and I thought, there are people like me who are sliding under the fence here. And somehow we're allowing some of the gems that Keith has been sharing with us to slip away. If I was to ask you what the worst job you've ever had was, I'm guessing for a lot of you, you instantly have an answer. With vehemence and vengeance, you could answer that question. If I was to throw it out, we might get some just rough stories about the worst job you've ever had. One of the worst jobs I ever had was packing apples at the Hearst Valley Apple Packing Company. My grandpa had worked there. My dad had worked there. I was third generation Jones to pack apples for Daryl Hurst. Now, Daryl Hurst was an ex-Marine, and this dude was tough. I mean, this work environment was brutal. At one point, I'm packing as fast as I can, and I've got two sizes of apples that I'm looking for, and the apples are rolling down this little beltway in front of me, and I am as fast as I can trying to find the right apples to fit the right size of my, and the next guy next to me has the next two sizes, and we're trying to pull these apples off of this belt as they roll past me. And Daryl walks up behind me, stands there, and in my ear he says, is that the fastest you can go? Are those new hands? Did you bring new hands with you to work today? Because I really need you to go faster. In my ear, the boss is saying this to me. At one point, I had made a huge pallet of boxes. And I didn't know where they were supposed to go. I had them on this big kind of push cart thing. And I started looking around. And I was trying to figure out where these boxes were supposed to go. And I saw Daryl. And I said, Daryl, I made all these boxes. Where are, they, where are they supposed to go? All the made boxes. And he said, oh, those all go on the roof. So I started looking around, trying to figure out, where, how do I get to the roof? There's an elevator. Where am I supposed to get to the roof? And so I spent five minutes walking around, trying to figure out where to go. And I saw one of Daryl's daughters. And I said, how do I get these boxes to the roof? And she said, did you ask my dad a dumb question? She said, his answer to dumb questions is on the roof. So I just got to tell you, there was one morning where I was coming into work and I was flying to get there because I knew if I was late, this is not a boss you wanted to be late for. This was a rough job environment. And it was so rough that I chose to get in an accident rather than be late for work without an excuse. It's that bad. Honestly, a lady pulled out in front of me. I had every opportunity to not hit her. And I knew I was late. And I'm thinking, as I'm slowing down, honestly, this is what I'm thinking. Having an accident will be so much better than facing Daryl. I am late. I'm going to hit her. It's her fault because she's pulling out in front of me. It's so bad. This is how afraid I was of my boss. I slowed down to about three miles an hour, and I hit her. Boom. <laughs> And she jumped out of her car and she said, I'm so, so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm totally at fault. I didn't see you. I said, I know, I know. You're okay. You're okay. (laughs) I slowed down and I drove to work. Sorry, Daryl. I got in an accident. A lady pulled out in front of me. Oh, okay. 
That's how afraid I was of my boss. It was the worst job I ever had. And we, we worked these crazy hours because when the apples are ripe, you pack. And you pack all day long. And you pack and you pack and you pack. And I know that for some of you out there, if I was to ask you, you've got a story like this. And for some of you, it's right now. It's the job you're in right now. It's the thing you're facing right now. It's the challenges that are up in your face right now. And so I just want to recognize for some of you, this series has been hitting right where you are. And for some of you, you're, you've been excusing yourselves. And this morning, I want to come after all of us a little bit with a situation where we really can't excuse ourselves. I pulled a little fast one on you by introducing Jeremiah 29, 11 at the beginning of our, our worship time together. I know that for a lot of you out there, this is a verse that you've memorized, that you know it, that you absolutely love it. When someone says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Most of you probably have some point in your life where this verse has meant something really meaningful to you. I'm kind of hoping that what I'm about to do right now is going to mess this verse up for you forever. That the next time you hear it, you're going to think back to this Sunday and think, oh yeah. Because when we try to take Jeremiah 29, 11 without the rest of the chapter, we're making a really big mistake. Because when you stop and recognize that this wonderful verse that God was saying to his people, when you stop and recognize the situation that this verse was being given to them in, I hope it changes Jeremiah 29, 11 for you forever. I'm going to read the rest of the story here. Jeremiah 29. Let's start with verse 4. We're going to go all the way through to verse 14. I've got it up on a slide here. If you've got your Bible, you can go ahead and turn to this. This is the passage we're going to kind of park in today and, and look at a little bit. Jeremiah 29, 4 to 14. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your son and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. We're at verse 10. This is one verse before the verse we all really like. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon. I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Oh, here it comes. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, 
to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. The Babylonian captivity. The nation of Israel has been captured. The Babylonians have come and taken them away from Jerusalem and into Babylon. They're captured. They've been exiled. They're prisoners. Babylonian captivity. Anybody know anything about Babylon at this time? Can you shoot it out to me if you know anything about Babylon at this time? Anything you have heard about what was going on in Babylon during this period of history? The hanging gardens. Thank you. The hanging gardens of Babylon. One of the seven most amazing things ever produced by man on this planet was right here in Babylon during this period of history. Babylon was this amazing place. Some of our, right now, some of our math and science was developed by the people that were thinking in Babylon at this period, at this time. Babylon was this amazing place. Tech center, if you would. A hub for, for life and, and energy in the region. Very advanced culture. Very hostile environment to the Jewish faith. These people were smart. They were way too smart for the Jews, the, the God of the Jews. This was a hostile environment for the faith of the Jews. They'd been captured. They were victims, right? Didn't they have every right to see themselves as victims? Babylon had captured them and taken them into exile. Isn't that what happened? Babylon took them into exile? Wait, is that what the Bible actually said? What did God's word actually say? Who sent them into exile? God sent them into exile. They weren't stuck in Babylon. They were sent to Babylon. Whoa. They weren't victims. You know what's interesting about victims? Victims have permission. If you see yourself at work as a victim, then you're going to give yourself permission. I'm going to give myself permission. Victims have permission. These people were sent. Number one, the first thing I want to be able to say to you this morning in thinking about your life and your current situation, your current job, your current not working, being retired, in school, all of the different things that we've mentioned or thought about that would excuse us from being able to actually recognize that what God wants to do in us matters in our day-to-day, whatever your situation is, whatever your quote-unquote work is. 
You have to see yourself as sent. I have to see myself as sent. Am I stuck? Or am I sent? All I can imagine is night falling and getting dark and that soldier up there, God, he had to be so sore at that point. His muscles, it, it, it probably took a beating and he'd been sitting there just still and motionless all day acting dead. And as soon as he could, that guy was sent. That guy was sent. He was on a mission. He was not confused about what had happened in his life. And what was going on for the children of Israel at this point is they were getting confused about their circumstances. And some of the prophets were starting to say to them, oh no, 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 don't worry. Don't worry, we're all gonna be good. We're gonna get out of here really soon. Don't worry. And God spoke to Jeremiah and reminded the children of Israel, I have placed you there. I sent you. You are sent by God. And this is a mindset. This is us choosing to get in step with God rather than see ourselves as victims of our current situation. Did God send me or am I stuck? You have to see yourselves as sent. Verses five and six. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. All of these things in verse 5 and 6, these are process things. Plant a garden. Do all of the work involved in planting a garden, including waiting on the produce to come. Have your kids get married so that they can have children and multiply and increase. These were things that were going to take a while. Plan to be there for a while. Engage the culture. Live. Live fully. Engage the culture in which I placed you. Now let's not get all overly spiritual here. They're prisoners in Babylon. This was a rough culture for them to engage. There was nothing friendly about it to their faith. <laughs> get married. Have babies. We're doing that part as a church. Good job. Good job. <laughs> get married. Have babies. Plant gardens. Live. Engage the culture in which I've sent you. How do we do that? What does that look like? We must engage, number two, my second point, we must engage the hostile culture. What does it look like to be in this culture but not of this culture? What does it look like to remember that the culture, the people in our culture that are hostile to Jesus are not the enemy? The people in your workplace that are hostile to Jesus are not the enemy. The neighbors that are irritating to you are not the enemy. The people in your school, the people in your street who are hostile to your faith or hostile to you, they aren't the enemy. 
There is an enemy, and he is waging war against God's plans for redemption here on this planet. And you and I have been dropped behind enemy lines to wage war for the kingdom of God. And there is an enemy. It's not the people in the culture around us that are hostile to Jesus. They are not the enemy. Whoever your they are, political parties, sexual orientation, there's so many little hot button items I could push on right here. What's your hot button item? Because we've all got a they. We've all got them. They aren't the enemy. We're, I think we're called to engage this hostile culture around us as sent ones, ones who are participating in God's calling on our lives, whatever that looks like, whatever your workplace environment is, your school, your retirement situation, whatever reason you give to excuse yourself from a made for Monday's message, I think every single one of us have been sent by God to participate in his calling to redeem this world to himself and people to know Jesus Christ through us. Number one, see yourselves as sent. Number two, engage the hostile culture. Verse seven, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find welfare. The city, Babylon. I mean, don't we just kind of, isn't that like, for anybody out there, does that kind of equal, Babylon equals sinful place in your mind? It's like, well, don't we use that word, Babylon, to, to kind of evoke a sense of badness? <laughs> this is the city that they're talking about here. Jeremiah is challenging them to seek the welfare of Babylon. Whoa. That word welfare, it's a really big, big word. In Hebrew, it's the word shalom. That word shalom, my third point is so shalom. Welfare, health, prosperity, Peace. Those are all elements in this word shalom. What does it look like to sow shalom in Babylon? I'm guessing that's a little bit harder than sowing shalom in Franklin. <laughs> Maybe just a smidge, Spring Hill, Thompson Station, Nashville, wherever you live right now. I'm guessing Babylon was just maybe a smidge tougher. So then what does it look like for us to sow shalom in Franklin, to be agents of prosperity and peace in our workplace, on our street, with our neighbors, to see ourselves as sent with the people that God has brought into our world, the people right around us. Sow shalom. Be agents of welfare, health, prosperity, and peace. Why was God telling the children of Israel to do this? Why was he telling them to see themselves as sent, to engage the hostile culture, to sow shalom in Babylon? If you know, you can shout it out there. Do anybody remember 
What happened in the story because Israel sowed shalom in Babylon? There's this really amazing story about a lion's den that comes a little bit later. Who is the main character in the lion's den story? Daniel. Get this. Daniel was probably one of the people who received this letter as a young man. When Jeremiah's message came to the children of Israel, part of what God was doing was he was saying, I have a plan. Somewhere down the road in my plan, Daniel is going to rise to power. I'm going to use Daniel to do amazing things to bless God's people right here in Babylon. But they had no way of knowing this. And so God said, I've got this 70-year vision that's the brutal part of, of Jeremiah 29, 11, when it follows verse 10. <laughs> 70 years in captivity is the context for Jeremiah 29, 11. And God said, in 70 years, I'm going to do something amazing. If you'll be faithful and do what I'm calling you to do, be my people in this hostile environment, things are going to happen. You're not even going to get a chance to see. Great things are going to happen for my kingdom. My story is going to be written through you sowing shalom in Babylon. Isn't that cool? God was doing something amazing, and it was beyond what we could, we, we could see, beyond what they could see. We were overseas for about eight years in France, and then we were in Morocco. We moved back to the Bay Area, for many of you, I know that's just right there, Babylon. You just see it right there. You immediately are like, boom, get it, Babylon. We moved back to the Bay Area. And I just have to tell you, I moved home and I got stuck. I saw my life as temporary, my living situation as temporary, my job situation. And by the way, I was one of those people who was primarily working with other people who were supposed to know Jesus and supposed to be kind to the people that they work with. And they weren't being that way to me. And I was a victim. I was a victim in my living situation. I was a victim in my job situation. I was stuck. I wasn't sent. I didn't understand. I didn't see it. I lost sight of God's big plan, what he was doing. I was hanging from my parachute and waiting for him to shoot me. Honestly, I was just stuck. My daughter and my wife can affirm, I was stuck. I really was. I wasn't very pleasant to be around. I was grumpy. I was bitter and I was angry and I was giving myself all kinds of permission because I was a victim. I had lost sight of the fact that, that God is good and that it can be trusted. Honestly, if we just kind of get those two pieces down somewhere in our soul, if God is good and he can be trusted, and if I can remind you about that this morning in your current Babylonian situation, whatever it is, God is good and he can be trusted. He can use you now. And I had lost that narrative. I was stuck. 
God started to break through with me. I've shared some of these stories uh, and other times that I've preached, but there were things that started to happen in relationships on my street where God started to just, just remind me, I put you here. I didn't wake up this morning and say, oh, where's Darren? I've totally lost track of him. Oh my gosh, he's in the Bay Area and his job situation isn't good. I got to fix it. No, you know what? God woke up this morning and he said, do you remember that I'm good? And do you remember that I love you? Do you remember that I've got a plan in your current 70 years of captivity, whatever it looks like, I'm working. Sometimes I'm working in you. Sometimes I'm working through you. And I lost the narrative. And as I began to get back in track with what God was doing, I started to see my job situation differently. I started to see my neighbors differently. I started to see, honestly, I started to see the Christians around me that were so irritating to me. They were some of the primary source of irritation in my life were other people who knew Jesus. And I recognized that some of these people are why God has called me to this current situation. And God began to shift my mindset. And I started to see myself as sent. I started to engage my hostile culture. And I started to sow shalom around me. How do we sow shalom? You know what? This is so great. Last week, Keith gave us three reasons, three ways that we can sow shalom. He didn't call it that. He called it something different. But as he was saying them last week, I was like, I'm using that. I'm stealing that for next week because we just have to be reminded. Anybody remember? Can you just tell us right out of the top? Anybody remember the three things Keith said last week at the end of his message? Anybody? Anybody have one of them? Say it loud. Kindness, trustworthiness, trustworthiness. boldness, excellent. And he, he combined them with a couple of other words. He said, be uncommonly kind. Sowing shalom. This is part of what it looks like. How do you and I sow shalom at school, working from home, packing apples, Whatever your worst job situation is, whatever the toughest thing you're facing in your life right now, when you sang that song and you put a face in there, who is it that God has put you in the path of that he wants to burn you out so they see him? Who is that person for you? Be uncommonly kind. Be uncommonly trustworthy. Are you the person that people know you're not the one that's gonna talk behind their back? You know what that's like when you interact with someone and you hear them rip someone else to shreds and you walk away from the conversation and you think, do they talk about me like that? If we're gonna be trustworthy people, we're gonna be people that speak with uncommon kindness about the people around us People can trust us to follow through, trust us to, to be who we say we're going to be, and be uncommonly bold, ready with an answer. I love that idea that most of our strategic evangelism, most of it is kind of about us. 
Because I think that most evangelism in scripture is meant to happen when our lives are lived in such a way that our lives provoke a question. And then I think we're pretty clear in understanding that we're at that point to be ready with an answer for what God is doing in us, for what God is doing through us, for our relationship with Jesus. We're to be ready with an answer for the people around us. When our lives provoke a question and they ask, that we're able to engage them with boldness, be uncommonly bold. Are you sent or are you stuck? Are you sent or are you stuck? Stuck. 